Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast today. This is episode number 339, and our guest is Stephen West. Stephen, as you will hear, is from Texas, and to this day is a guide and outfitter in Texas, Mexico, and other areas of the South. Stephen has a vast amount of experience where I have absolutely zero experience. And for me, that's the perfect combination because one of my favorite aspects of this podcast is that personally and selfishly, I get to learn a lot of new things. And that certainly happened in this discussion, and I think it will happen for you as well. If you have misconceptions about hunting Texas, you have curiosity about hunting Old Mexico, you have interest in sheep, subspecies of deer that are unique, or maybe hunting audads, you will certainly enjoy this episode. Before we do dive into the episode, I want to remind you guys to look for the link in the show description that says, leave us a message. And if you do that in this month of April, 2022, you'll be entered to win a custom Exo Mountain Gear and Chris Reeve knife. You can also reach us by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Hit pause and do that now, and then come right back. Here's this conversation with Stephen West. Well, Stephen, welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast. I'm excited to chat with you, man. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we, uh, I thought of reaching out to you. It's been, gosh, some months now, but you uh, as a guide and hunting and everything you're up to, busy, busy, busy. And you're just, we were just talking here before you just dropped, uh, dropped some clients off at the airport who are headed home from a hunt. Um, so yeah, man, so much going on to kick things off. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. I don't, I've never hunted Southwest period. Uh, never hunted Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Mexico, and any of that. So I'm excited to chat some about that. Um, and we'll, we'll get into it all, but start with the intro and background. I think for, at least from what I know of you, which isn't a ton, like basically your roots are in Texas and in the Southwest. And I think that goes back a couple generations. Is that right? Totally. Yeah. I'm a, uh, I'm fifth generation on a cattle and hunting ranch down here in South Texas, about 80 miles South of San Antonio. And so, you know, the hunting and, you know, that, that way of life has just been, what I am and what, you know, my family is for, you know, obviously my entire life. And, you know, from an early age, I knew that I wasn't just going to be, you know, the stereotypical, you know, go to college, get a good job and work a nine to five the rest of my life. It just never was in the, in my deck of cards. Um, you know, I did, I went to college at Texas A&M and had a blast. Probably had too much fun. Um, graduated in 2013 actually started working on sport fishing boats i was real into the marlin tournament fishing stuff and did a bunch of traveling and you know honestly thought that's what i was going to do the rest of my life was you know be a sport fishing captain and mate and travel the world and live on you know other people's big fancy yachts and uh, <laughs> i did that for yeah it wasn't it wasn't a bad way of life but uh you know, I honestly, I got to the point then people used to always ask me, you know, what do you like better hunting or fishing? You know, just kind of the generic question I always used to get and never could answer it. You know, that my answer would always be whatever time of year it is, you know, whatever I'm doing, that's my favorite thing to do. So 
but I, I finally got to the point, you know, where the fishing stuff started really overlapping with the hunting stuff. And it was, you know, I found myself missing and, you know, really looking back on the hunting and ranching lifestyle and, you know, it, it just didn't feel right. So, you know, that was kind of finally the answer that, that, you know, my brain gave myself, you know, it was like, okay, it's, it's clear. I got to go back to the ranch and, you know, we're being in South Texas, we're not in the mountains, we're not in the back country, you know, I mean, it, it's all, you know, whitetail hunting and, what you think of South Texas being, if you've got any experience with it or, you know, seen photos or, or video from there, it's a whole different way of hunting. And I love it. And I still do. Nothing's like, you know, I, I, I love hunting at home, but started working uh, with a group out of Utah years back. And mainly I was just kind of a hunting consultant booking hunts for them. It was a guy that had a bunch of stuff going in Utah and also in Sonora, Mexico and to make a, and already, long story short, um, I really fell in love with Sonora, Mexico and hunting the desert and, you know, just that environment and that kind of culture. And I'm a total deer nerd. And so, you know, paired that with a good adventure in the, the southwestern desert, um, you know, looking at those big chocolate horn desert mule deer, it just lit the fire under me. And uh, so I've been operating over there. Um I did two years with the guy that I started with down there and then, uh, had an opportunity kind of followed my lap to start running hunts on the Siri Indian reservation and Tiburon Island as well. Um, mainly focused on Sheldoni mule deer, done a couple desert sheep over there, but you know, again, being a total deer nerd, um, that was kind of the route I, I took in the very beginning and the route I'm, you know, still navigating now. So, seven years in uh sonora now um yeah we've got a bunch of ranches leased down there i say a bunch we've got seven ranches down there and then uh like this upcoming year we've got half of the deer tags on tiburon island and then you know so sonora mexico is a, a huge focus for my outfit and the outfit that i work with desert safaris here in texas um other in Mexico, I mean, we're our bread and butter is Audad sheep and desert mule deer, Transpecus desert mule deer here in in West Texas. And uh, yeah, Texas is a good place to be a hunting guide and a hunting outfitter because there's so much to do. You know, our seasons are long. Our deer season, our mule deer season opens mid November, and we go through the last week into January. Um, sheep season, our Audad's hunts run year round, so. And, you know, on good ranches that are, are big places with a lot of sheep, you know, I mean, we're, we're hunting year round. I mean, every week of the year, there's a, there's a sheep hunt going on and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a good place to be a hunting guide. And I think that's why, you know, from an early age, I kind of fell into that and it's, I've, I've never looked back. Do you personally have an off season then? sounds like there's so much opportunity. You could just be going, going, going. Yeah. You know, honestly, I really don't, um, you know, that's both a good and a bad thing. I'm a, I'm the kind of guy that likes to be busy. I don't like a whole lot of downtime. I do need some downtime every now and then, um, you know, cause especially like this time of year, we're starting to run on fumes. You know, we've been pretty much hunting almost every day since, uh, the, the later part of August right now. So, yeah, we'll hunt sheep through the end of April and then uh, get about a month off. And then our summers just 
chock full of axis deer hunts, free range axis deer, you know, here in kind of the start of the, you know, Western part of the state and the hill country. Um, so yeah, to answer your question there, there's not a whole lot of off season down here, but that's a good thing for me. Yeah. Where did the TV show come into that? I'm sure that some guys listening to this uh, podcast may know you from your TV show, West of Texas. Um, I've only seen a little bit of it. I just don't watch much hunting TV in general, but what I have seen uh, from the show looks great. And is honestly part of the reason I wanted to chat with you after kind of seeing some of the country that you actually hunt, but how did that come into play? Yeah, I probably left that out of the, the first part of the story there. But, um, when I was working on sport fishing boats, um, I had a guy that contacted me and said that he wanted to, I, I was running charters out of a little beach town here in South Texas called Porter Anzis. And, uh, we're, you know, it's, it's good Marlin fishing there in the summertime. A lot of, you know, Mahi, Mahi, Tuna, Wahoo, all your pelagic species, um, had a guy contact me with a TV show and they were working with a research group out of Texas A&M wanting to tag and release Mahi, Mahi, um, specifically chicken dolphins, what you call them. It's a, it's a juvenile um, mahi-mahi, and there's also a separate species of mahi-mahi that just don't get any bigger. And they were doing a bunch of research on that. So we, again, a long story short, we were heading out that morning to go fishing, and I'd never met the guy before or anything. And, you know, we're sitting up there in the flybridge making a long run out to the fishing grounds and started, you know, just kind of small talking to the guy, where are you from, blah, blah, blah. And, he said, Oh, I'm from a, a little bitty town in South Texas. You've probably never heard of it. And, you know, being from that part of the state, it's just like, well, try me. And uh, he <laughs> said, Oh, it's a little town called Tilden. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. So that's actually where my mom's side of the family started ranching back in the thirties. And uh, he had just moved there recently as his brother-in-law had gotten cancer and his, he, they owned a, kind of the one convenience store in town. So his, his wife and him moved down there and started running the business while he was in the hospital. And uh, yeah, I was, a, I guess, a junior in college then. And so I started kind of interning with him. I'd, I'd always kind of had an interest in the film and stuff and the TV part of the, the industry. And and, uh, so yeah, I just started interning with him. And when I graduated college, um, he offered me the host position and, uh, it was a salary job too, which is, you know, kind of outside the norm of a lot of the TV, you know, the outdoor television stuff. Um, usually, you know, the host is putting all the money up. So it's a good way to get my foot in the door. And I did that for two years and then started, uh, well, two, two guys out of Louisiana were starting a hunting show and asked me to come on with them. And I did that for two years. And then uh, we started West of Texas, um, after the end of that with the same production company. So just kind of one thing after another, but always trying to keep my foot in the door and, and hold on. And yeah, uh, life's gotten a lot crazier since then. Cause you know, got the TV show and then now all the, the guiding and outfitting stuff on top of it. So yeah, it, uh, makes it pretty hectic. One thing I've appreciated, at least in, in what I've experienced from you, Stephen, is like guys here in Texas and have some preconceptions and I'd, I'd put myself in that group, but there's a lot of adventure to what you're doing uh, in some of the country that you're hunting in West Texas. And you know, if I oversimplify and stereotype a bit, guys may hear Texas and think, oh, everything's private, everything's fenced, everything's flat, but there's some cool country, some adventure to be had, some rugged kind of backcountry stuff in West Texas in particular, right? 
Oh man, it, it's uh, some of the the gnarliest, most remote country that that I've ever hunted, and I feel like I've I've been lucky enough to hunt a lot of the western states, um, especially you know on the deer and sheep side of things. And yeah, Texas is you know ninety eight percent or whatever they say private land. Um, that doesn't mean that there ain't a back country or there's not remote areas. You know, you're you're looking at especially in west texas a lot of these ranches are you know it's it's nothing to hear of a hundred thousand acre ranch you know i mean ranches out there are still generational they're still you know legacy type of places so you know for example our our biggest lease that we've got out there it's in between a town called alpine texas and fort in uh, fort stockton the davis mountains and uh you know that ranch is 140,000 acres and there's parts of that ranch that you know, we won't go in, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me. We won't go into some of these areas for two years at a time. And, uh, you know, so being private land, everybody thinks that it's all, you know, if somebody hears out of state, hears word ranch, it's like, boom, that means there's a high fence. That means there's corn feeders. That means that we're just going to drive around and shoot stuff out of the truck. That is not the case. Um, you know, for example, this Chinati mountain area that I've really love that's kind of the place that's got my heart um it's right on the border of texas and mexico close to a town called oinaga if you're familiar with like the show narcos um the mexico side of that series starts out in oinaga um so it's it's a lawless and rugged remote extreme place you know not only are you dealing with remote country and you know rattlesnakes and you know just everything that lives in the desert you know but this especially the past year and a half out there i mean it is the true wild west um you know being up there where we are we're so remote like we don't go camping up there for you know for the photos and you know the instagram stuff like we go camping up there because we have to if we want to go hunting up there you know you got to put the effort in and stay up there and so when we run into illegals up there they're not the guys that are coming across or the girls that are coming across you know looking for a job if they're if they're crossing through the chinati mountains you know three thousand foot elevation change and some of the most harsh country there is in the state you know those are the guys that are running drugs so you know it's uh it's a weird deal but you know to be honest with you you know the adventure and the unknown and the wild stuff that's the stuff that you know, that I've gotten addicted to and, you know, that anywhere where there's adventure and there's stuff that's unknown and there's a little bit of risk, that's usually places that, you know, I kind of am drawn to. How, how many uh, interesting encounters have you had up there with guys running drugs? <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen as much as you would think. Um, you know, we see them quite a bit as far as encounters go. You know, we obviously try to stay out of their way and they yeah. try to stay out of our way. Um, but I mean, if you spend enough time up there, you know, everybody's got their stories. Um, my most recent story is from back in November. Um, it was my last sheep hunt of the, of you know, our fall season, we we're about to kick off the deer hunts and it was already starting to get pretty cold and you know, where that time of year, you really don't run into guys up there that much is because the weather gets so cold at night. Uh, it, you know, I'm sure y'all spent time in the desert. It's similar to like Arizona, you know I mean? It could be 90 degrees in a day. 
as soon as that sun dips behind the mountains, you know, I mean, it, it's, you know, dropping 20 degrees, you know, every hour, it seems like on some nights, you know, so it's that time of year, you're really, your radar's always on, but it's really not in full force. Um, so make it another long story short, we were, we had just packed up with this guy and, uh, I say we, it was just me and a hunter and we, you know, parked the truck as far as I could get it up the Canyon and, and start hiking the rest of the way up. And the guy was a real cool guy, uh, kind of a younger guy. And, you know, I could just tell from the very get go, like this kind of hunter that, you know, I like to have up there just cause he's in it for the experience and not just how big, how big is he, you know, yeah. one of those kind of guys. And, but right off the bat, you know, just asking me, you know, all these questions about illegals, just cause y'all watch the news. I'm sure, you know, the past yeah. year on the Texas border has been pretty dramatic. And, you know, I was kind of trying to downplay it and just focus on sheep hunting, you know, yeah, yeah, they're out here, but you know, they don't mess with us. We don't mess with them. And, you know, just kind of all that type of stuff. And so we go up there and it was the day that we had first met and go up there, set up camp. Um, we had about two hours until the sun went down. So we just, we camp right where we're hunting, you know, so we just pull out the spotters from the tent and start glassing and find a big ram and, uh, went and killed him and we killed him way up above us, but you know, really not very far from camp, but it was one of those like, man, I mean, it's, we just packed in today. It's cold, you know, let's not, you know, just kick our ass going up there tonight and, you know, packing them out through the, middle of the night and everything so we you know killed the ram and he died in a nasty spot we went back down to tent with plans on just going to cape him out tomorrow and uh so we go to bed or we're you know sitting there we camp out by this little cave and we're sitting in the cave eating dinner and stuff and he starts asking me all these you know drug running questions again and you know i'm just kind of downplaying it but telling him a few stories and so we go to bed and right before we you know, he goes into his tent. I was like, Hey, if you hear anything walking around camp tonight, you know, no worries. There's javelinas that live right around here. There's a little pond right there where we camp. And, you know, so his javelinas will come in and pretty much stay all night. They're not scared of anything and you can't even hardly scare them away. And so, uh, you know, about an hour after we go to bed, you know, you start hearing javelinas walking around and stuff, no big deal. And they kind of come and go and about shoot three o'clock in the morning I wake up to and it was really windy that night so you know tents rattling and stuff and you know brush is already crunching outside the tent just from the wind but I wake up hearing something kind of walking down an old trail and I, I could tell you know there's a big mule trail that we hike in um down that trail or coming up that trail and I could tell something was walking down that trail in like a bunch of something and kind of big and clumsy so, you know, it's like, all right, it's not deer, it's not javelinas, maybe it's a group of sheep. And then start thinking, it's like, there ain't no sheep coming into water in the middle of the night, you know, I mean, sheep are diurnal animals. And, and, uh, so, you know, keep coming closer and closer and, you know, people start kind of coming into my mind, like, God, no, it's not people, but is it? And, uh, so finally it gets to the point where it's like, dude, they're going to walk right into my tent. And, uh, there's no moon that night. I mean, it is dark. And, uh, finally it's like, man, they, they are like literally about to walk into my tent. I mean, I was camped like right off of the trail and, but I mean, it's a glorified game trail, you know, it's not like a hiking yeah. trail where you know people are always coming down. And so, uh, end up the, whatever it was like stopped right outside of my tent. 
and I like they're so close that I can hear them just standing there, you know, like shifting their weight, like rocks crunching. They're not even walking, but just standing there. I can hear them, you know, and uh, I thought I heard somebody like clear their throat or, you know, cough. And so as soon as that happened, you know, I kind of rattle my tent and I, you know, yell out and unzip my tent and then unzip my rain, my rain fly and grab my pistol and jump out of my tent. And, you know, all that takes what, 15 or 20 seconds for me to get out of my sleeping bag and do all that. And by the time I get out, shoot, they were only about 10 yards away and there's shoot 10 or 12 guys and they go, you know, just flushing like a covey of quail running every way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And all wearing camo and, and had backpacks on. And so anyways, like my hunter doesn't even wake up, you know, it's the middle of the night. (laughs) So he didn't wake up and I sure you know, I'm not about to just go wake him up and tell him that story in the middle of the night. And so try to go back to bed. Don't do a very good job of that. And, uh, you know, sun comes up the next morning, we have coffee and eat a little bit and, you know, go cape that ram out and come down. I don't say anything to my hunter. And, uh, so we come down and, you know, get the ram all taken care of. And he's like, man, I, you know, I mean, he wasn't going to shoot another one. So it's like, well, I guess let's just pack up camp and head back down. You're done early. And so we're heading back down to the truck. We've got a couple miles to go and we get kind of off this first big, big bench that we camp up on and back down to where we can see the whole Valley, like where the truck is and everything. And I can see a truck like way down there and it's coming this way. And, uh, I pull up my binos and it's like, it's a white truck. And which border patrols, you know, white truck with a, a green stripe down the door. And, uh, so, you know, it's like, Hey, I think there's border patrol down there, but they're coming our way, but they, you know, I knew that they wouldn't be able to get up here too much further. And, uh, so we keep going down and get to the truck and, you know, get the truck turned around. Now it's been 45 minutes or so since we'd seen that truck. And all of a sudden, like we're going around this big turn and, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a sheer drop off on the right side of the truck going downhill. You know, it's a real narrow, just kind of ranch mountain road. And so we're going around this big turn and, you know, I'm like kind of paying attention to my wheels on the downhill side. And my hunter was like, Whoa, stop, stop, stop. And I was like, what, you know, thinking I was about to go, you know, one of my tires about to slip off or something and hit the brakes. And there's a four wheeler like hauling blood coming our way. And, uh, so they pull up and, uh, two four wheelers and they, you know, jump out and come running up to my window. And, uh, I had met those agents before and they're like, Hey, we're chasing 10 guys right now. Um, they were headed up this, this Canyon. They weren't on this trail, but they're headed up this Canyon. Have y'all seen them? I was like, well, no, but I mean, not, not today. Do you mean last night? And, uh, you know, mind you, my hunter still hadn't even heard this story. <laughs> you know, kind of like, oh man, I'm caught now. And, uh, so they're like, no, but right now we're chasing these guys right now. And I was like, man, um, I hate to break it to you, Trey, but, you know, talking to my hunter, I was like, but we had, uh, 10 guys come through camp last night and, you know, everything was fine. There's no problems or anything, but you know, they came right up to my tent and, you know, I could tell they're all packing, you know, when they're carrying backpacks like that, like you, when, you know, when you've seen enough of them, you know, who's who, and, uh, especially going through that area. And so those guys were like, no, that we're, we're chasing guys right now. But was that you last night camped off the mule trail? And I was like, yep. And they said, man, 
there on uh, the blimps, we had, and, you know, they're running infrared cameras off there. And, and we're 10 miles from the river, like where I'm camped there. The start of the ranch is a mile from, from the border. So, I mean, this is like prime route right here. And uh, so they, they called it the dope trail, the border patrol. And they said, we had 10 different groups go up the dope trail last night. And each group had 10 to 12 guys in it. So that night Jeez. I had like over a hundred people walk through my camp and I only saw 10 of them. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, so, a bunch of stories like that, you know, yeah. nothing ever, nothing ever like dangerous or, you know, stuff, yeah. stuff like yeah. that. We, we save that stuff for, for Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so it's such like, it's so foreign to me to, to think of like backcountry living in these areas, as you, as you mentioned, like for some of these hunts, you're, you're essentially backpacking in, right. You're carrying camp, you're setting up camp, obviously water, as you mentioned, is the big factor that comes to mind for me, but like anything else that just kind of comes to mind to you, that's maybe unique about backcountry living specifically in these areas versus, you know, call it the Rocky mountains. Yeah. You kind of, you nailed it with the, with the water. Um, the water is our biggest issue up there. You know, just y'all, y'all done enough backcountry hunt, you know, how much water you, you drink and you use when you're eating up there, especially when you're eating freeze dried food, you know, you're, you're not only drinking water, but you're eating it too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, I mean, on average, we, we allocate about three and a half liters a day per guy. And, you know, you're, you're, going to bed thirsty and waking up thirsty every morning. And, uh, that, that's always our biggest issue just cause there is no running water up there. I mean, there's nothing that you could even take a filter up there and, you know, like filter your water. I mean, there, there's no standing water. There's no kind of water source up there. These sheep and these deer up there, when it doesn't rain, they're a lot of their water intake is coming, you know, obviously just from the vegetation and the browse. Um, you know, everything in the desert that grows holds a lot of water. Um, but that's, that's always our, our biggest issue is, uh, having enough water in it, you know, shoot it. It really took a lot of time to kind of get that whole program down. And it seems like, you know, usually every trip, especially when I have more than one hunter, like we're usually having to make another water run. Um, just because even packing that much water when you're, cause we, when we pack up, I mean, we're, we're always planning on at least five days. Um, you know, so what's that shift, uh, three and a half times five. Yeah, I mean, that's like 17 over and a half 15. liters. Yeah. I'm not a math guy, but yeah, it's a lot of weight, um, and a lot of room too. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that it's, that's where it gets real unique. I know guys like in Arizona and, you know, parts of New Mexico, places like that, they have to deal with it too, but there's more water in, in, in those areas than we got, I can promise you. Um, <laughs> what are you using gets, to transport the water? What's your best kind of using just different three liter collapsible jugs? Yeah, we use like right now I use Sea uh, to Summit three liter uh, bladders. And okay. They're, I like those because they make one that's kind of long and skinny. Um, it, you can fit a bunch of them in your pack and, you know, kind of shove them into all the, you know, little mm-hmm. cracks and crevices between all your gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then usually, you know, so we'll take about three of those per guy and then uh, usually take one like, 
you know, each guy will take one six liter also. And then, okay. uh, yeah. So usually, um, you know, we're packing all of our camp and all of our water and then we carry our food in and dry bags, you know? So yeah, we're packing and carrying stuff. Um, That's all weight. luckily that, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of weight and it's not, I mean, y'all know it ain't fun carrying a lot of weight in your hands too, when you're packing it on your back at the same time. So, but luckily, I mean, when we're packing in it, it, it's not real far up there. Um, it's a, it's a pretty nasty little hike getting to camp, but it's only about a mile or so, but it's, it's straight up. So it's kind of a good warm up, you know, I mean, everybody, when we're driving in, it's like, Oh, that doesn't look too bad, you know, but then you put the pack on and, you know, start yeah. hiking up that thing. It takes a little longer. <laughs> so if we talk West Texas and we can talk some more about Sonora and other stuff later, uh, but specifically for those West Texas hunts guys hearing this, like, man, that sounds cool. Heck of an adventure. What opportunities available? So I know Audad, you mentioned sheep. What, any of the deer species that inhabit these West Texas, Texas areas as well, or no? Oh yeah. Um, we really good mule deer hunting down there. Um, these are, you know, what you call your trans-Pecos mule deer in the, in the record books they are, you know, they're a mule deer, desert mule deer. Um, but uh, like you talk to people down here in Texas, you know, everybody kind of thinks that they ought to be their own type of sub- subspecies. It, you know, a lot of these deer, they're, they're cool little deer. I mean, body wise, they're real similar to like just a, a regular desert mule deer you find in Arizona or, you know, Sonora, Mexico. But, uh, these deer they're, we call them down here. We call them short chanked, you know, buckle look huge. They, they get not uncommon to see, you know, non-typical stuff down here. A lot of our old bucks will get kickers and, you know, see plenty of drop time, stuff like that. Just, you know, a lot of gnarly stuff. And, um, when we kill a buck, a high scoring buck, it's usually cause he's got a lot of points to go with them. Our bucks, for some reason here, they lack the main beams, but they look really pretty, you know? So like, it, it's kind of funny. You look at a buck down here that you would take that deer and put him in Sonora, Mexico. He would score 190 just cause he's in Sonora, Mexico, you know, but for some reason when we walk up to him in Texas, you know, that's where that short shank thing comes into play our bucks lock main beam down here you know it you know we probably average 19 to 21 inches on our main beams you know Mm. and it's hard to break over that 21 inch mark so that kind of kind of hurts you right there and having short beams usually hurts your mass too um so but they look really pretty um my favorite hunt in texas without a doubt and it's up in the chinatis too um it's a carmen mountain whitetail which is our version of a coos deer but yeah yeah they are cool little cool little deer um geographically isolated if you want to get real scientific with it um they only live in the mountain ranges that parallel the rio grande area in that what what they call the big bend region um so right there in that western part you know more mountainous part of the state along the river they live in mexico and in texas um but being geographically isolated, you know, that means that they do not leave those mountain ranges in theory. Um, you hear a lot of guys claiming Carmen deer that are, you know, Del Rio places all the way, you know, kind of down that way. But, uh, the true Carmen deer, they're, you know, real similar to, to a coos deer, you know, looking at hundred pounds, 110 inches for Boone and Crockett. Um, they look different in a coos deer though. 
a little bit. They've like a lot of the old timers out here, they call them the fantail deer just because when they're running away from you, I mean, their, their tail looks like it's two foot long and, uh, you know, it's a real unproportional for their body. They kind of got longer hair, but, uh, these little deer just, man, they're really fun to hunt. I mean, just hunting exactly like a coos deer. Um, but you know, it's, there's not a whole lot of access to them. So we're pretty fortunate to have a good population where we're at. Hmm. See, I've, I've, I wanted to ask about those cause I've heard the name, but didn't know anything about them. And I didn't know if that was truly kind of a unique species or had some differences from a coos or if it was just like, Hey, here we call them a carbon deer and over there they call them a coos deer type thing. So there actually is some difference between them. Total subspecies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, they are different from a coos deer, but you know, again, they're for all practical purposes, a coos deer, you know, it's, uh, but just got a different name to them and a little, little bit different look, but they act the same. They live the same. Um, yeah. You know, real rugged living little creatures. Yeah. Do you get clients that both rifle hunt and bow hunt for those? Or is it primarily, you know, with that terrain or guys sticking with the rifle? What's that look like? Yeah. Usually sticking with the rifle. Um, they're definitely, you know, I mean, the bow hunt is, is definitely doable. Um, I've never even had a bow hunter for, for the Carmen stuff and, you know, being, being a subspecies and, you know, being geographically isolated and everything access is really tough to get. Um, a lot of the population of Carmen deer live on state land and in these areas of state land, there is no hunting. And so, you know, again, when it comes to access, you're pretty limited, um, which drives the price up. And when the price gets driven up, you know, people want more of a, a guaranteed when what's that opportunity, you know, gets in front of them. They want to be as concrete as they can, you know, for that kind of money. Um, you know, and, and it, it's tough country to bow hunt too, but again, I mean, it, it's nothing different than some of that, you know, nasty stuff in Arizona where guys are doing it all the time. Um, but yeah, again, it's just kind of a, kind of a different crowd once we're, you know, when that price starts getting up there, I mean, it's, yeah, you're not getting a whole lot of your, you know, 25 year old guys doing these hunts, you know, it's more, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. if that makes any sense. For mm-hmm. sure. Or a lot of guys doing that, doing these Carmen hunts just to fill out, I don't even know what it would be called, but like call it the slam right like are they're just trying to get all the species or subspecies of deer is that like a lot of these guys are doing it specifically or do you definitely get clients who are like no i just want to hunt this area i want to hunt these deer type thing no that's a good question a lot of i've definitely had guys before that are just trying to check one off the off the list you know um thankfully though it seems like the past couple years most of our guys have been just guys that love you know the back country and love doing something new and, you know, just kind of being out in the wild and yeah, just, just hunting. Um, it gets, it, the pressure gets to be a lot and, you know, it takes a lot of the fun out of it when a guy's all he cares about is, you know, checking one off the list or, you know, how big is he and stuff like that. It's, I kind of, you know, like a lot of my bookings nowadays come straight from Instagram. I usually post stories of, you know, a lot of my hunts and stuff. And 
you know, Instagram's a great marketing tool. I probably book 90% of my hunt just straight off of, you know, Instagram direct messages. And, uh, so with that being said, you know, a lot of guys that are booking, they kind of, you know, they're, they're usually like-minded, um, you know, cause they kind of see how I operate these hunts and, you know, what I kind of value is important to me and stuff out there is a lot bigger than, you know, how big is that buck or how, how long was that Ram? Um, and again, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with, with, you know, guys that want to chase big stuff. I love hunting big stuff, but you know, it's deeper than that for me. And that's, that's why I love these kind of areas because, you know, the quality of these animals is through the roof. I mean, our, our sheep are absolutely gigantic in this area, our deer. I mean, most of the bucks we even think about shooting on, on these hunts are going to be Boone and Crockett or bigger. Um, but when you get to pair that with a guaranteed adventure and, you know, just an all out grind of a hunt, um, usually guys that are signing up for that are, are pretty like-minded, which makes it cool. It's interesting that 90, you know, call it whatever percent, 90% of those hunts are just coming through Instagram. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the thing that stuck out to me as you say that is, and you kind of hinted at it, but like those guys are they're not just looking at a website or having a phone call and asking questions. Like they're, they're seeing because you're sharing how you hunt, where you're hunting, like they're seeing what that experience looks like. And so they have a better idea kind of of what they're getting into, uh, which is neat. No doubt. No doubt. And that's what like when I post on Instagram and stuff on, you know, the stories I was talking about, I'm not only posting videos and pictures of deer or sheep, you know, I post videos of every part of the hunt. It's almost like a TV show, you know? I mean, I, I try to post, you know, stuff about the, the hike in setting up camp, you know, the good times, the bad times, you know, the misery, the glory, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know, you know, y'all know as good as, as anybody too. I mean, what you see on, you know, social media and, you know, TV, stuff like that, you're looking at a highlight reel. Usually, you know, it's, you know, it's all the good stuff. And that's why I try to show, you know, some of the bad stuff too, and some of the hard times and, and try to glorify those moments too, because at the end of the day, like, you know, if you want to go hunt the back country and, you know, go put, you know, 10, 15 miles on the boots every day. Like, yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot of glory in that in those moments, but at the end of the day and at the end of the trip, you know, those are, you know, those, those hard times, those days that were just grueling and, you know, felt like they would never end. Those are the days that you talk about, at least me, you know, those are the stuff that those are the times that stick out in your mind the most. And, you know, if you kill something big, while you're out there, I mean, that's, that's icing on the cake, but at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of it is, is the experience, you know, I've had plenty of guys leave hunts like this that, that didn't kill anything. And, you know, I mean, you, they leave, you know, extremely happy just because of what they put themselves through and what they learned about themselves along the way. Yeah. Could not agree more. What is, so whether it's sheep, deer, audad, like a lot of these uh, species we've at least tinted talking about in Texas. Clearly with Texas, as you said, it's pretty much ranch, right? Like it's private. You're going to need some sort of access, whether it's a fully guided hunt, you're paying some sort of trespass, whatever, right? So there's, there's going to be a cost involved. But in terms of the actual hunting license or tag availability, 
What does that look like even for non-residents? Like even a sheep, for example, uh, or Audat or these carbon deer, is that pretty regulated? Is there a big draw to that stuff or what does that look like? The sheep have regulated at all, um, which is, is shoot, even being from Texas, I mean, it's kind of weird. Um, but the population has just been increasing, you know, um, but even looking across the border into New Mexico, um, and I did say New Mexico, not old Mexico, but because New Mexico, you know, I mean, they've got, they've got draws, they've got, you know, odd ad tags and stuff like that. We don't have anything like that. We do have some, some public opportunities, um, for odd ad stuff and in some state areas, um, pretty limited. And a lot of the odd ad opportunities in those areas are, you know, what they call exotics on those hunts. Cause they are an exotic obviously, but, uh, you know, like a, a lot of the hunting that goes on on state land, it'll be like you draw a, a javelina or a mule deer tag, you know, some kind of a native game animal tag in these areas where you can shoot quote unquote exotics while you're out there, if you see them, um, you know, so access is, is the biggest issue for odd ad, um, just because a lot of the public stuff, like it's, it's not, you know, the, the odd ad, they get run around there pretty good, you know, so the big rounds are usually kind of staying out of those areas. Um, but, uh, yeah, the Carmen deer stuff, that's shoot. As far as I know, that's a hundred percent private land. As far as hunting opportunities go, um, our non-resident licenses are pretty cheap. You know, they're 315 bucks, something like that, but that doesn't, that doesn't get you access anywhere. Um, so that's always kind of the, the biggest piece of the puzzle in Texas is, is finding a place to hunt hmm. and it's all getting expensive now, you know, shoot that, all that <laughs> stuff back. Even when I was a kid, I mean, you know, 2,500 bucks, go get you a good ram. You know, people, I mean, they, a lot of these old ranchers, they looked at Audat as, you know, people down south, southern, eastern part of the state think about wild hogs, you know, just kind of a, a nuisance and a feral animal. But, uh, you know, you see how big that sheep hunting game has gotten, especially in the last, you know, 15 years or so, just how, how expensive it's all gotten. It's, it's weeded out a lot of guys that would have loved to have been doing that stuff. You know, 50 years ago, they, they'd have been sheep hunters, but today they're not because it's too expensive. Well, the odd ad sheep, I mean, shoot, that's, that's kind of the, the ideal middleman right there. Cause it's, you know, affordable in the ski in the scheme of sheep hunting, you know, but, uh, at the same time for us as outfitters and guides, man, it makes life a lot easier on us when we have these big populations of sheep and we're, you know, able to harvest the numbers we are every year and, and get the kind of money we're getting these days. Um, but also being able to have a spot in the market to where, you know, a lot of guys are, you know, kind of, a lot of guys can afford this kind of hunt. Yeah. I've, you know, I've heard Audad call it like the poor man sheep hunt and now it's like the upper middle class sheep hunt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I feel like it's, you know, even I feel like even the last, and I don't know if it's because I'm paying more attention because I have wanted to hunt Audad, but like, I feel like in the last five years alone, like it's just, you know, there's been more interest and prices have continued to, you know, creep up there. Absolutely. Man, there, there's guys here and I'm not one of them, but there's guys in Texas now that are charging 10 grand for, for Audad hunts. Wow. 
Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, is, yeah. do you feel like that's, I mean, I've, we see that throughout hunting, right? Like there's more and more interest and all that, which is great, but I do feel for sure that the other sheep species, right. Whether guys going up North for dolls or looking at deserts or whatever, like that's continued to creep up. So you go down in a price tier to like an Audad, but then that's prices being driven up, right? Like everything is just kind of up and up and up at least in the last handful of years. Every year it seems like, yep. Just creeps up a little bit more every year. Um, yeah. And I, you know, the guys that are charging nine, 10 grand for these sheep hunts. I mean, that's, that that's very, very unique um like us we're we're 6500 for our sheep hunts and we're kind of right in the middle of the pack as far as outfitters go um and and for you know quote unquote quality type of rams um you know we're we're trying to kill you know 30 plus inch rams and try to have every every ram over 10 years old and uh so that's kind of the where the numbers at for for that kind of quality ram right now you definitely still see the the $2,500 sheep hunts you know but those are just kind of we're going sheep hunt and we're going to kill a sheep you know i mean it doesn't really matter what what it looks like um but yeah it's it's with the way sheep hunting and just hunting in general is getting how expensive it's all getting um i think everything kind of you know gets inflated just you know as a cause of, you know, just inflation in general, it just yeah. kind of makes its way around the world, you know? Yeah. So for you as a guide, whether you're doing one of these sheep hunts, you're doing a Carmen deer, you know, you're, you're judging trying to get that 30 inch odd dad, or you're looking at these, you know, small Carmen deer and trying to judge is that, you know, 105 or 110, whatever big country, what, what practically do you use for your optics setup? uh, gear wise, and then any tips for particular glassing in this kind of desert type of environment? Yeah. Um, shoot, it's all about glassing up here. You know, it's, uh, obviously being in the desert, you know, um, and that's kind of a, a conundrum, if you will, in this sheep hunting down here is when guys first sign up and, you know, they're watching YouTube or, or reading up on, on sheep hunting what the program looks like down here yeah, you see a lot of big numbers as far as like how many sheep you're going to be looking at you know it's it's nothing to look at you know a hundred sheep in a day or even up to 500 sheep in a day at the right time of year with the with the right kind of conditions but that can still if you see 200 sheep in a day you can still have a slow day because you might not see anything all day long and then right at dark you know you see a, a group of 200 going to bed you know so it's like yeah there's a ton of sheep right there but man it was you know you had to really pick your way through to to find them um so which makes class and just all that more important um my kind of go-to kit for glassing would be you know a spot and scope a pair of 10 power binos with a range finder in my bino harness on my chest. And then, uh, I'll tell you something that I've been using lately that I've fallen in love with and feel naked without is those new, uh, six hour stabilized 16 power binoculars. <laughs> Are those things not amazing? Oh uh, my gosh. Do you use them too? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, not dude. They're not, a game changer. Yeah. I haven't fully adopted them for all hunts, but the couple times I've been around them, holy crap yeah right yeah and kind of a funny little housing on them you know at first yeah. when i open them up it's like huh this is kind of 
futuristic looking, you know, yeah. but, uh, yeah. man, it is. And especially running on a, double uh, a battery. I mean, that battery, like this year, when I went down to Mexico, I went down in the middle of December, came home for a couple of days for Christmas. And then I went right back and stayed until early part of March. And I changed my battery the first time and using them every day, like all day long, pretty much, um, changed my battery like in late February. So wow. I mean, it, yeah, pretty, pretty practical little setup there, but it's such a good little, little middleman between your binos and your spotting yep. scope, you know, I mean, not often. And you can have 15 to 16 power binos without a tripod and be rock solid with one hand. So, yeah. So when are you grabbing those? Like, are you always packing those and your tins? And when are you picking one up over the other? Cause that's like the, yeah, the little bit Steve and I have used them. It's like, what's their place? Like they're cool yeah. when you pick them up, but it's like still figuring out because they are so different, like kind of where they fall. Totally. Dude, I've gotten to the point now to where, um, I hike like when I'm, when we're hiking, like hunting, I'm, I'm carrying them. I mean, I'm, they're in my hand. I've got a little bino harness or a little bino case, little marsupial case that, uh, fits them perfect. And it's not a chest rig or anything, just, just a, strictly a case. Um, but I carry them with me all the time now, just because when you're, you know, you got a couple miles under you already and you're still, you know, climbing uphill and you're, you know, starting to get tired, but you're still hunting. I mean, it's picking up those tens and, you know, trying to glass in the shadows and stuff while you're still standing just taking a breather you know you're pretty shaky but throwing those 16s up real quick with one hand being rock solid i mean it's yeah i can i can promise you i've uh definitely had some sheep that would have gotten away from me you know without them without a doubt so but no i mean it's not it's not the most convenient thing but um yeah carry it i carry them in my hand all the time now unless i'm like already got a ram that we know is a shooter and we're you know making a stock to get closer i'll throw them in the pack just to you know be a little more streamlined but uh yeah i'm i'm like i said naked without them now <laughs> yeah i was like i said once they like once they bump the optical quality up on that you know just in the next few years they're, they're gonna be yeah um yeah i don't know they're the technology the the uh upside of that is just crazy yeah if they could figure out a way to put the stabilization and the rangefinder all in a you know like the same size <laughs> yeah. housing uh, they got they got it they got the world on fire then so i did want to touch just like super quick on on mexico what 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 do you love about hunting down there i know that's a broad question but you kind of even up front talked about once you connected with that, you just love it, the culture, all of it. But again, like me being a complete novice to it, but have having talked to some guys that have been down there and just fall in love with it. Like what for you personally, what's the big connection and appeal? Yeah, that, that's a broad question, but it's it's a pretty easy one for me. Um, the culture and the the lifestyle down there is what what originally kind of drew me down there. I mean, I, I was addicted with I was addicted to Sonora, Mexico before I even saw, you know, my first deer hit the ground over there. I mean, it was just kind of, seems like everybody's got those kind of places that it's like, as soon as you step foot somewhere, it's like, Oh man, I'm here. Like, this is it. I've been, I've been waiting for this, you know, even without knowing a whole lot about it And Mexico is that place for me. And, uh, 
you know, like I said earlier, I started with an outfit um, for two years down there, and we were strictly hunting just leases, ranches that this guy had had leased up. And and on those ranches, I mean, shoot, you're the coolest thing about those places. A lot of those places are, you know, you step back in time, like a long way back in time, pretty quick. Um, you know, you get that kind of old cowboy feel when you go to these old ranches, you know, where a lot of these cowboys down there, I mean, they're living not a whole lot differently than the way guys used to live, you know, late 1800s down there. Um, you know, if some of these ranchers, they don't even have, or some of these cowboys on ranches, they don't have a vehicle and they might not have ever even driven a truck before, you know, their great grandfather was born and raised on the ranch and they, you know, they're still going today. And, uh, you know, so that's a, I'm just kind of a, I'm a nerd about, you know, cowboy history and, you know, stuff like that, the wild West. And there's no better, better place to get that feel than Sonora, Mexico. And, um, I guess seven years ago. So I've been doing my own outfit and down there for seven years. Um, and when I started my own deal, um, I started on the Siri Indian reservation and, uh, if you're familiar or heard of that area at all, like if, if y'all have heard of Tiburon Island, Tiburon Island is, uh, you know, kind of the real iconic place to hunt desert sheep. And it's the biggest island in the Sea of Cortez. It's 464 square miles, which is 300 and something thousand acres and uninhabited, uh, undeveloped, just a couple of roads, just wild country. And that's all part of the Syria Indian Reservation as well. And so, um, Man, when I first started on the Siri, and this was just on the mainland at first before I even went to the island, it was like all that cowboy, old school cowboy nostalgia that I'd felt on those ranches before then to all of a sudden now pairing it with Indians. Like, I mean, we we're playing cowboys and Indians every day. <laughs> like, I mean, not for real. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah just kind of some, you know, really wild and lawless country down there. And, and those, those Siri people, um, that, that's just a really special place, you know, and they're, they're very prideful, their culture, um, you know, their lineage, all that it's, it's a real, you know, kind of a native sense you get down there. I mean, they still do a lot of their old practices and, you know, they, I tell people they live primitively in a modern way, if that makes sense, you know, a couple of them got generators, you know, but they're living in Adobe huts and stuff like that. A couple of them got, you know, vehicles and stuff, but you know, when you're out on the reservation running into these guys, I mean, we've had some, some pretty gnarly stories that, you know, when, once we get through, like, for example, my first year, we had this, this one night where we got held up real bad. And I mean, at gunpoint and stuff and, got beat up a little bit and we, we were going through this village in the middle of the night and had been told not to go through at night. And just, we'd already been there a month and, you know, in our eyes, I mean, we were just being kind of young and stupid and, Oh man, we know the drill down here now, you know, and we thought we knew everybody and which we did, but that doesn't mean anything, you know, <laughs> and, uh, went through this village at night and got held up and shook down and robbed and stuff. And they let us go and, it was a bad night, you know, but I remember and my mouth was bleeding and stuff once we're leaving and, you know, we finally make it to the highway and we hadn't even really said a word. And my partner at the time looked over at me. He was like, man, nobody's got these stories, but our grandparents, but our uh, <laughs> great, great grandparents, you know, 
And it's like, yeah, it's a good way of putting it, you know, like the kind of <laughs> stuff we talk about out here is the kind of stuff that, you know, they're talking about in the mid 1800s, you know, where the Indians at type of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's that kind of stuff that, that I fall in love with down there though. Wow. Well, dude, appreciate the time. I keep you on here all morning and keep asking you to tell us stories and stuff like that, which would be fun, but, um, want to be respectful of your time. What, what resources would you point listeners to if they want to find more about hunts, follow you, check out the show? I mean, you got a ton going on. So what's the best place to get in touch with all that stuff, man? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, Instagram is where I, I'm, I'm the most up to date there. Um, I don't do a whole lot on Facebook. I'm, I'm pretty old school when it comes to, you know, technology and social media and stuff, but I do use Instagram a lot. Um, I work with a group called desert safaris. Um, so, you know, you can follow them for hunt info and, you know, keeping up to date with the outfit as a whole. And then, you know, my personal page, which is just Steven, which was S T E P H E N two underscores West. Um, yeah, I all like the personal hunts I'm guiding. I, you know, usually keep a pretty good, you know, diary type of story going on those hunts so follow me there yeah over at desert safaris or check out desertsafaris.com on the internet for you know more of the info side of things about the hunts well i hope you enjoyed that conversation guys yes you can go to the links in the show description to learn much more follow steven on instagram or check out more from his outfitters I will say that's personally from my personal Instagram account, which I don't use much. I follow very few people, but Steven is one of the guys that I enjoy following because he posts many live updates from the field and it is great to follow what he is up to. While you're looking at those links in the show description, be sure to check out the one that says leave us a message and you can share your question for a future podcast with us. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically.